Hey everyone, welcome to the Bandits Show presented by the Hoops Audit. I'm your host, McCoy Lum. And today I couldn't be more excited to welcome a former U-Sport All-Star Canadian national team member and both the coach and GM of the Vancouver Bandits. Welcome, Kyle Julius. How's everything going, Coach? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. And as I said earlier, off the record here or before the taping, uh, you know, I think it's great that you follow us the way you do. And, and I think your analysis have been accurate and uh, and fair. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk, talk some hoops, man. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. Yeah. So, yeah. So just to let you know, the purpose of this show is really give you a chance to speak about your journey as a Canadian coach and your career, as well as pick your brain about the game, because I think Bandits fans would really appreciate um, getting to hear sort of your insights and perspectives that only a coach at your level and a, frankly, a player, a guy who played at your level um, would have. So I'm really excited to get into this. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so we're just going to start by just getting into your life before coaching. So you're a guy that grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, a town that has produced a lot more NHL pros, <laughs> NHL hockey players than than any basketball, pro basketball players. But despite that, you were able to really maximize your surroundings and to make yourself a successful player. So can you just talk about what it was like growing up in that hockey oriented environment and still being able to focus on basketball? Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate McCoy. My father was a coach. He was the, he was the Lakehead university women's basketball coach. And, and uh, you know, growing up basketball was, you know, main topic of conversation at our house, but, but to be honest, hockey, you know, hockey was my first love. My, my parents loved hockey. My mom actually really loved hockey. Um, and uh, my two brothers and I, my younger brothers, we, we all played hockey and I played at a pretty high level in Thunder Bay until that point where, uh, you know, you can't kind of do both at a high level. And, um, you know, my son, I have a son now, he's 12, and he's starting to get into basketball. And it makes me think about when I was 12. And, and the the year that I was 12, I started to, you know, really practice hard. And fortunately for me, my, my father was a coach, so I could get into the gym pretty easily. And then I had a guy to kind of guide me and, you know, tell me what was going on and what I should and shouldn't do. But yeah, hockey was my first love. I played basketball all day, every day, because I loved being in the gym. The one thing that you couldn't really do in hockey was you know just go on your own and work out right. you know in practice you needed ice time I mean in Thunder Bay we had the outdoor rinks for sure but you couldn't really just work on your game anyways the way you I felt like you could in basketball you could just go in there and you know start working and um yeah I just I, I fell in love with being able to work on my game and it's funny I, I love talking about this because this is kind of how I coach now and I've never really known anything different and I've never really changed. And it's why some players really thrive with me and some don't is, you know, I just, I believe in just outworking the competition, you know, uh, being from Thunder Bay, I think I'm pretty sure I'm still the only player to ever get a college scholarship, you know, to the U S uh, coming from Thunder Bay. I don't know if there's ever been one since, but, but it was just my work ethic. I would shoot five, six, seven, 800 shots a day. I would go to, to when I was in high school, I would go um, to high school in, in the morning if the gym was being used, then I would ball handle in the hallways. Uh, I'd shoot again at lunch. I'd shoot after after school, and then I would go to my dad's practices. And when I was playing high school basketball, it was really the same. Instead of going to my dad's practice, I would just go to you know the high school yeah. practice. And then if there was time left in the day, I'd find a way back to the gym. I kind of did that my whole life. I got cut from the national team five, six, seven yeah. summers in a row, and then just kept going out. And finally, one summer got lucky and made it. And and uh, but it was just always work ethic, and that's kind of how I coach basketball. Sometimes it's helped me as a coach, and sometimes I probably 
pushed a guy or two a little bit too hard, but but it's what I believe in. I believe in just outworking the competition. I believe in preparation, and and that's kind of how I got a, a scholarship and and play coming from from Thunder Bay. I just just went in the gym at a young age and worked really hard. Yeah. So like you talk about a lot of time you working on your game on your own, right? And you mentioned going to some of your dad's practices. So did you have a, like any personal training or any skill development where you had a guy working with you or was it just mostly competing in practices and then working on your own? A little, a little bit of both. There was definitely not the trainer, you know, culture that there is today, yeah. but, but there was a, there was always a workout culture. There right. might not be a trainer culture, but there was always a workout culture. And if you go around to any U sports university, any NCAA university, there's always that one or two, maybe three guys, not necessarily ever anymore, but there's always two or three on every team that just want to work. Um, even at the pro level, it's two, three, four, maybe four or five guys will stay after practice yeah. and truly work on their game all the time. But for me, uh, there was a guy uh, by the name of John LaPlante, and it was the summer that I was going into grade eight. So I was about a year ahead of where my son is now. And John was a great point guard for uh, Lakehead University. And he took me in the gym and we would do this, the exact same workout every day. It was about 500 shots and it was really footwork based. And, and he was hard on me. And at first I was struggled. And then I remember doing it for two weeks and then getting better. And then I re remember seeing results after a month and then another two weeks. And then I just really fell in love with working out and, and I could feel myself yeah. getting better at that age. You know, when you're at the bottom, it's easy to make gains. Right. Yeah. And I remember feeling that at a young age and, and at my first real basketball game with referees and a scoreboard and, you know, not a game that kind of like wasn't in a summer camp or something was, was high school. It was ninth grade. We didn't have OBA basketball up there, which is the Ontario basketball stuff. Like it was in the Toronto area, but it wasn't in, you know, Thunder Bay. So we had no club stuff, no provincial stuff. Uh, my first real game was, was in grade nine and uh, I was good for that grade and for that age, especially in Thunder Bay because I just worked. So yeah. yeah, there was, there was one university player, you know, and at that time, McCoy, there's no YouTube, there's no Twitter, there's no, you know, Instagram, there's no yeah. Instagram trainers, there's nothing. So, and even if you wanted to watch the NBA, you had to wait till it came on Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Right. And so for me, these guys at Lakehead university, you know, they were my NBA players. They were my LeBrons. They were my Kobe's. And, you know, I actually see that with the bandits, you know, being a young organization in, in the Vancouver area, you see the young kids coming out and how excited they are yeah. to meet, meet our pros. And we touch those kids, you know um, you know, to their soul. And I think it's really important. And so that's, ha that happened to me the same way the bandits kind of do that uh, for our you know community here. Um, the Lakehead university players did it for me. And then I tell the story too, for me, you know, when I was in the ninth grade, I started, they let me play pickup with them. I couldn't even get my shot off, couldn't get it off. But then I remember the 10th grade. Okay. Now I'm making some. And then I remember the 11th grade, I'm scoring all of them. And then I remember the 12th grade, I had, you know, scholarship offers and I was dominating the pickup runs in it. You know, it, it, it's, it was just literally growth year after year of just working on my game. I, I started lifting weights when I was in the ninth grade and, and uh, just fell in love with working on my game and getting better. And that's how I coach. And those are the guys that I respect. And those are the guys that I, we really have synergy when we play McCoy. And when yeah. I coach, I have synergy with these types of guys, you know, um, struggle with the guys that aren't like that. You know, I really struggle with those. They struggle with me. And I think that's just who I am and how I coach. I double down on that. And and I know that when I get a group of guys that's like that, you know, it, it takes off and it's, it's fun. Yeah, no, uh, I, I'm just taking in everything you said there. So it's a lot of 
it sounds like it was a lot of internal motivation just to like, you know, a have the confidence and courage to go play with these older guys at such a young age. And then also just really investing your own time when you could be doing as a kid, anything else. Right. hundred percent. So yeah. I guess a, a question I had to follow up was given in, how do you feel about the way kids are being developed now? Because there's obviously a lot more resources in terms of exposure to the game. You have Instagram, you have, you have a ton, like, like we said, trainer culture where you see drills. Um, so how do you feel about the way kids are developing today compared to what you did? Well, I can say the kids are better now. There's just more like the, you know, for example, I mean, this is a long winded conversation. So I'll try and yeah. keep it efficient for you, <laughs> but to, you know, you know, to be honest, so when I played, when I was growing up, you know, a university player in my area was the best player I could be around. I didn't even meet a division one player basically until I went on my division one visits. I didn't even, you know, they, they just were not around, um, you know, and then let alone national team guys and pros never even came around a pro until I was in my twenties. And now you've got guys that have played pro five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And they're opening, you know, skill academies, they're opening, uh, AAU programs, club programs. And I think it's amazing. I, you know, I was in Toronto doing skill and development as a coach before I coached professionally during the boom, you know, when, when the bounce AAU program started with Andrew Wiggins and, you know, you've had Dwayne, Dwayne notice on your, on your, uh, podcast and he, he was part of that growth, you know, Steph Jankovic, all these kids, I used to have them in the gym in my skill and development workouts at the same time. And I watched it and I, I called it free enterprise. You know, it wasn't, okay, we're going to follow basketball Ontario rules and do it that way. It wasn't, we're going to uh, follow basketball Canada rules and in, in their long-term athlete development model, which was, which was good. They, they, it was just a group of guys that said, Hey, we're going to get the best players in the area together. We're going to take them to the States and we're going to compete against those guys. And we're going to, you know, iron sharpens iron. And they had pros coming in and working with kids and guys like myself at the time, I had already played pro a bunch. I was working with some of those kids. And, and so, yeah, I, I'd say the growth is it's at a higher level now because what I didn't learn until I was 25 kids now are learning at 12. You know, I, I work with my son a little bit and we talk footwork and we work on certain shots and he's 12 and, and I never even saw half that stuff, you know, until I was later in life. So, but I do think there is a problem. And I even spoke about it with my wife today. So my, we, we were in Asia for the last six years. I was coaching in Asia. So my son had no club basketball, nothing to really do over there. It was one of the main reasons we came back to Canada was so my, my kids could play basketball and have a chance to you know join groups and organizations. And so we say on Thursday, he's going to do with this trainer. And on, on Friday, he's going to go to these tryouts. And on Sunday, he's going to go to this tryout and so on and so forth. But I said, we got to find a gym where he just plays. We, we, we got to find a pickup where we just drop him off yeah. and, and he just hoops and he just plays for three and four hours and no parents around and no coach telling him what to do. I mean, that's where you learn the game. That's where you play for the pure joy. That's how I learned to fall in love with the game. I mean, I was self-motivated like we talked about in my workouts, but the best was just going and having an older guy yell at you, tell yeah. you to tell you to play harder, you know, tell you to guard and then try and guard an older guy who's, you know, bigger, stronger and faster. That, that was the best. I don't think there's enough of that. And I really, truly believe the recipe, if you really want to breed, you know, toughness and, and, and high level skill and development, for sure, the trainers and all that stuff, it helps. But allowing kids to play at least 10 to 15 hours a week of just pick up with better players. We don't have that. Uh, I don't I don't even know where it is in this area. I got to find it for my kids. But 
but we don't have it enough anymore. It's age group basketball. You know, it's, it's highly organized. It's definitely competitive. There's great coaching. There's great opportunities, but I really do think that kids are really missing out on just playing pickup and, and playing for the love of it. Um, trying new moves, taking tough shots, turning the ball over and, 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 you know, just in pickup, you have to force yourself to compete. Right. Um, yeah. And that's where for me, like, man, I, that's where I learned that I hated losing more than I liked winning because if you lose in, in a good pickup game, you, you, know, you might not get on the court for a while after that. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I think to answer your question and kids are better, the development is high what they're learning is high. Uh, it's quick. It's, it's efficient. It's interesting. Some too much, you know, too much of this, too much of that, too much James Harden, you know, not enough, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever else. But, but at the end of the day, I do think they're missing, you know, pick up with older players and yeah. older kids. I do think that's a missing, uh, missing piece to this puzzle for sure. Yeah. And uh, that's a great answer. And that's a, also a great way to kind of segue into your coaching career here. So I did a little research on you and, and uh, I heard you talking about your time when you played pro in Italy. And that was sort of the first time you were exposed to these new spacing and offensive concepts that really ignited this flame in you to start. You wanted to coach right away and start implementing these systems and concepts right away. So for our viewers who are unfamiliar with European style hoops and FIBA basketball, can you describe what some of these concepts that you saw in European basketball that amazed you so much and how it was such a contrast to what you were exposed to in North America during your time? Yeah, I mean, it was it was different um, and it was really hard for me to play at a high level there because it was so different, you know. Uh, so uh, so first of all, when I when I got to Italy, I got I was I was on a really good team with a with a like a veteran team of guys that had all been playing overseas with a very, very good coach who, who now coaches actually back in the Italian first league this year. But his name was Nevin Spacchia at the time. He was the head coach of the Croatian national team um he's very well uh, he's been in and out of the nba for many years you know in between that time and and now he's coached all over euro league teams and he, he was excellent and i could not believe how simple our offense was and how it was based on spacing right well first of all that was my first exposure to the 24 second shot clock as well right mm -hmm. i played in the yep. ncaa which was 35 and then i played u sports at the time and i'm pretty sure it was 34 you know, those years that I was in U sports and, and then all of a sudden now I'm overseas and it's a 24 second shot clock and we're running spacing guys to the corner and very simple, clean, efficient sets, you know, horn sets were really getting big at the time. It was 2005. I could not believe how many wide open shots I was getting as a shooter. And we weren't, in my opinion, running offense because what I had run, you know, leading up to that was, you know, detail, this guy goes here, this guy goes here, you cut when he does this, you cut when he does that, you, you know, all types of, you know, structured, you know, three out, two in type offenses and um, not as many ball screens to initiate yeah. offense and things like that. We, that year in Italy, we, we were, a, we were a lower budget team. We upset everybody in Italy that year. We beat the Euro league teams. We were really, really good. Uh, we went to the playoffs and we ran like a horn set. Yep. And then a roll replace set and then a few other little, um, you know, kind of like wrinkles to those things. Yep. And we were scoring 90 points, 88 points, <laughs> 92 points, you know, the same that teams are scoring. I mean, and, and I remember just literally being like, man, this is this is unbelievable. And, you know, then as a player, you know, you continue to play. And, and you know, I got into skill and development a couple of years later because I yep. only played pro for about four years. But, you know, 
I remember when I first started coaching, everybody making such a huge deal of, you know, the five out and, and, and spacing and, yeah. you know, pain screens and middle ball screen. And I was like, man, we were doing that in Italy. All of the Italian teams yeah. were doing that in 2005, you know, yeah. especially the role replace offense. And so if you talk to the guys that play for me, the the guys that I'm close with that have played the most for me, we, when I first started coaching, I ran an offense. I just called it heat because we wanted it to be fast and mm -hmm. quick. And, and it was a role replace set. I've run that set. Actually, this was the only team in my 10 years of coaching this year with the bandits. It's the only time I didn't run it because we, we were a little bit different this mm -hmm. year than I've ever been, but everybody loved heat. Where's heat coach? Why aren't we using heat, 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 heat. And it was a, it was literally the role replace offense that I ran in 2005 with my Italian team. And I mean, I put my tweaks into it, but, but yeah, it's um, the spacing, the timing um, that's been in Europe for a long, long time, more than anyone even talks about now. I think just the problem is there's no video of it, right? It's like, yeah, you want to go watch a game from those eras, 2000 and say two to seven or eight, you'll never find it. We have some of those games online from my team, but they were literally from a VHS, literally from <laughs> a, a CD that was then, you know, um, put onto, you know, the internet or whatever. And, and uh, the quality is terrible, but, but yeah, it, I re really, Really sparked the way that I wanted to coach. It really sparked the way that I wanted to play. Um, I was a shooter. I was a three-point shooter, so always partial and biased to you know spacing and 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 running to the corners. But but yeah, I mean, 2005 for me was was or was really eye-opening. And then I've always just kind of studied European teams since. Um, I spent six years in Asia, where it's really cool because you can't really play like that in Asia. They 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 the the owners of teams they want bigs, they want yeah. seven footers and they make you take two of them and then yeah. you have these rules where you can only play two at a time and then one in the fourth quarter and yeah. all these things so i've been exposed to like really looking at the game from really different angles over the last 10 years of my coaching and then this year with the bandits it was funny because i was like you know what i'm gonna play big <laughs> and uh, i know the cebl is gonna play small yeah. and i'm gonna play big and I'm going to double down on it and we did and i'm really proud of it it did to be honest statistically it really didn't work that much it was close but man we we played different than everybody no one else played two bigs and if you if you take a look at that finals you know nick had or the semifinals nick has a good game georgie struggles if georgie has six seven points we yeah. win and everyone's yeah. saying hey man the two big offense is genius and you know we talked to other staffs around the league and we talked to some players around the league and they were like man we can't guard it if you guys are if you guys are executing we we can't guard it and it was, I'm proud of it because I tried something completely different. Uh, but, you know, genuinely speaking, it was, if you look at my 10 years, it was a bit of an anomaly of, of the way that I've kind of coached over the last 10 years. So interesting. It was an experiment here in Vancouver, for sure. I think I'll probably get back to my five out now <laughs> and uh, my timing and pace. But, but yeah, it was fun. It was cool. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, no. Well, we're going to get into your time in Taiwan and the bandits, but you're kind of stealing some of the answer, pre-answering like some Am of the I? questions yeah. I had. No, but it's all good. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but it's it's really cool that that period in time when you were playing in Italy and being exposed to those concepts, like you said, like 2005-ish time, right? And it's funny because how that kind of changed the way you look at basketball, because for me, um, I was in elementary school and that was kind of the time when the, the Mike D'Antoni sons were coming on, right? With sure, Nash. Sure. And that yep. re that really opened, like as a young kid, like watching that, that really opened my eyes on what basketball, I guess in my mind was supposed to be because that sort of informed like the yep. way I, I looked at basketball, right? Like yep. seeing how, yep. how a system could 
make a guy like Raja Bell, right? Turn him from a, not that much of a score to like a 15 to 18 point a game guy on efficient yep. shooting, right? So yeah, great, great point. Yeah, yeah great so point. that yeah. that type of stuff, that, that really opened my eyes. So it's really cool to hear that you were kind of in that same boat during a similar time period. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so in in Italy, you also played with Chris Jackson, right? Akfur, yeah, Abdul that was that year. That yeah. was that and year, yeah. So a question I want to ask because a lot of the discourse around Stephen Curry, people like older guys are like, oh yeah, and my dad too said something like, oh yeah, we didn't have Steph Curry, but we had Chris Jackson who, you yeah. know, didn't put up the same numbers, but stylistically, they're like kind of similar. So can you kind of speak to that? Or like, are they kind of similar in your yeah. opinion? Oh yeah, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf. So I got to Italy and um, he didn't come until, I want to say like, a couple days before something like our second or third game, you know, and again, I didn't play a lot on that team. I would get minutes every night, but just very limited. Um, you know, I just wasn't good enough. And uh, so we go through this entire training camp. And then I think the owners realized, you know, we needed some firepower or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and my, my dad used to talk about, you know, Chris Jackson at LSU and stuff like that when I was growing up. And then we used to, you know, we used to subscribe to Sports Illustrated, right? I mean, back in the day, that was the Instagram yeah. for basketball, right? <laughs> and uh, I remember I had the Sports Illustrated with him on the cover. It was one of the it was one of the pictures that I put, you know, on the wall in my room. And then I got a chance to play with with him. And uh, you know, the rumors, the stories, all that stuff, uh, McCoy is true. I mean, he's skinny, six one, like Steph Curry, and his shooting, his ability to get the shot off. He was more like a straight, what I call like a straight line shooter. He wouldn't use the shiftiness to, you know, three and four dribbles, sidestep, all that stuff that's like really popular now. He didn't use it. He's just efficient. Mm -hmm. He'd catch and shoot, catch, shot fake, one dribble, maybe two dribbles, and that was it. But he, it was, he was so good at it. It was so polished. His ability to just pull up while you're still moving defensively was incredible. Actually, the one thing that he taught me, <clears throat> and we used to shoot together after practice because, as I said, there's not a lot of guys – on any level, if you if if you want to make improvements during the season, if you want to grow as a player, just work out after practice. Just work out when you're tired. Just work on your game. And um, Chris Jackson was one of the guys that did that. Mark Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, you know the real the, his name. And I, and I and I used to as well. And so we would shoot after practice. I saw him make 63 threes in a row, 68 threes in a row. I saw him just, I mean, just shoot it. But it was all the time. It was all the time. He taught me this thing about six months months of consistency, he told me, right? So he would talk about, okay, anybody can do it for six days. Anybody can do it for six weeks. You know, anybody can do it for two, three months, but can you do it six, seven, eight months? Like, and I was like, man, that's what working out is. Yeah. That's what, you know, working on your game is. And, he, you know, he had his faith. He had uh, his routines and he, you know, he suffered severely from Tourette's yeah. and his faith, his faith, his routines, you know, the, the shooting consistently helped him, you know, with it. And um, so he talked to me about a shot fake, you know, and that's where I really learned uh, how important a good shot fake was. It's something that I talk about with all my players. We harp on it. Um, I had a championship team and all we talked about was shot fake and we had jokes about the shot fake, but we, used it it was like part of our offense like a good shot fake you know and um yeah so that was one of the great stories about playing with Mahmoud and he he would teach me his shot fake like you did not know if he was shooting it or faking like until the very last millisecond because it was so efficient and yeah he taught me some little things like that that I've always kept with me um that like I said that team was really good and he was a leader on that team um it was a it was a special time to, pl to play with a guy like him for sure yeah
Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's yeah, a good way to transition here into your actual coaching career now, because I've heard you talk about how you've taken this very untraditional coaching path to get to the coaching levels that you've gotten to. So can you just, for our, for our listeners, just kind of speak on what that path looked like to get you your first head coaching job? Yeah, I, I think I did it. I think I did it backwards. You know, I, I call it a unique path. Um, sometimes I think it's really helped me. And sometimes I think it's hurt me a little bit as well. Um, you know, so I think the coaching path in Canada is it's pretty clear and it's pretty um, it's it's put in place. You know, you you, you start um, with your provincial organizations. Right. And, I, and then you do your certifications and then you move up to the same certifications and process with, you know, Canada basketball. And then I think you start working as an assistant, you know, somewhere, maybe a high school coach and then an assistant in youth sports. And then you can just kind of grow and build your connections and, and, and do it. I did none of that. Like, I mean, absolutely none of that. Um, I took the exact same approach to coaching that I did to playing. I was like, I just going to work on my own. I'm just going to work. You know, uh, I've never been a huge kind of networking guy. I just work. And, and I think too, McCoy, that's not always great. You know, for our listeners, I think relationships are super important. And, but uh, you know, when you grow up in Thunder Bay and you try and become a basketball player from a place like Thunder Bay, unfortunately for me, ev everyone was the enemy. Everyone was trying to stop me. I had to beat everyone. It, you know, the Ontario provincial teams wouldn't let me play because I was too expensive. Why would they fly a guy from, you know, Thunder Bay down and put them up when they can just get a guy from Toronto who's 20 minutes away, you know, stuff like that. So, I mean, at least that's how it was in my brain, in my mind, right? So, um, and I did the same thing for coaching. So I stopped playing overseas. I started, I opened up my training business. And so half of it was the process and half of it was my personal life. I, I got married. I had two kids. Uh, I was working a job. Uh, I was working a 40 hour week for a real estate company, a developer. I was doing my training at the same time. And then I had this opportunity to, I, I knew I really wanted to coach, but I was looking for opportunities where I could make money and coach because I had a family, you know? And so at that time, you know, you know, no disrespect to U sports, but what the U sports, what, what a U sports assistant would, would make versus their time and energy was for me, I couldn't do it. Not with my, not with my family. And so um, I was working for a developer in Toronto the NBL Canada was really growing. It was really good, you know, level of play at that time. And, you know, 2000 in between like 11 and 14, those three or four years, it was really good. And I knew the guys uh, from the Raptors that worked with the Mississauga power and I was begging them for a job and they finally gave me the opportunity and the money was so low. I was like, well, I can't do it for the money. So I went to my real estate boss and I was like, Hey man, can I do both for one year? He said, how are you going to do both? And I said, just let me do both. So he did. He he agreed to pay me my my regular salary, and then I went and worked for the Mississauga Power. I was living in Hamilton, which is an hour from Mississauga. That time in the mornings, getting there, so we would practice in Mississauga at nine a.m. Then I would drive to my job, which was in Guelph, another hour, you know, in a different direction. And then for the home games, I'd literally drive back to Mississauga for the home games, and for the road games, I'd drive to wherever that was and meet them. And I was for for an entire season. I worked a 40 hour work week in um, real estate and I coached a professional team full time and I just did it. And, um, you know, that team, we struggled really bad or win or win loss record was my first year coaching. I had great people around me, but I fell in love with the guys like we had this great group of kids that just worked really hard. 
I cut anybody immediately that didn't really buy in. We had a lot of movement and um, I built some super strong relationships with guys and uh, we had a terrible record, but we won the first playoff game in franchise history. And uh, so then at the end of the season, um, my, my real estate boss basically says, okay, you're, that's enough because you can't, <laughs> I'm not going to let you do both anymore. So I guess you could say he fired me, but we agreed, you know, to part ways. So I'm like, all right, I got to find a way to make money enough now to end work for the Mississauga power. And then uh, my wife and I took a break. We went away for a weekend and I found out on Twitter that the Toronto Raptors had bought the Mississauga power for their G league team. That was the first year of the G league. So yeah. I had no job. Now I went from two jobs to, you know, no job. I, I didn't have enough experience to work for the, you know, nine Oh fives or the Raptors, you know, at that time. And uh, luckily the, the owner of the London lightning you know, the, the really good franchise in NBL Canada saw kind of what I had done, uh, how hard I had worked. And he gave me an opportunity. A close friend of mine was the general manager there at the time. So I got really lucky and um, we moved to London. And then from that point on, I've coached all over the world, coached the lightning. You know, we had some success. I, I, I coached all over the world, but yeah, I, I didn't do any of the assistant approach. I didn't do any of the basketball Ontario or basketball Canada approach. I just I just started coaching and I coached the way I tell people all the time. I coached the way that I wanted to be coached. I used the things that I liked in coaching that I had experienced. I used those and I built on those and I really tried to avoid the things I didn't like. The problem with that approach for me, though, over the 10 years has been not everybody was like me as a player. Right. And I've really struggled with a lot of the guys that I don't know, don't love it as much as I do or have a different approach. Uh, but at the same time, I've had tremendous synergy with guys that do want to work. Um, and it's been an exciting, it's been some super high highs and some super low lows. I think this bandit season was one of my lowest lows, which is good. Uh, I learned a lot and uh, got some great feedback from guys and, and the, our team and stuff. And, but yeah, that, that's kind of been my path. It was, um, I guess you could say I kind of built it myself. Uh, but now here I am 10, 11 years in. Um, very proud of what I've accomplished for sure. But at the same time, I don't really have that strong coaching tree, that strong coaching network um, because I, I, didn't, I, didn't just, I just didn't do it that way. But I have built one under me. Uh, McCoy, I have really helped a lot of coaches get jobs. I've hired a lot of coaches. Uh, I've I've been references for a lot of coaches. So I think all in all, it's been a, a kind of full circle experience. And and uh, if I was to look at my coaching career, I'd say that I just kind of finished the first quarter. If I, we were to look at it in in four quarters, I'd say just my age and the time that I've put in to this degree, I'd say I probably coached my first quarter. Yeah. yeah. That, that's an amazing answer. That's an amazing story. Um, you know, and I agree, like you're, you're young, you're like, I watch you in the sidelines, you're full of energy, full of life still, even with your family and a bunch of other stuff going in your life. But yeah. So I agree. I'm excited to see what's, what the future has in store in store for you. Now I want to get into your time with the London lightning, because that was a very successful period for you. So this, so you joined the London Lightning in 2014, which if you, people don't know, that's a team in, in the NBLC. And at the time, the NBLC was sort of at its peak. It had 10 teams versus, I guess, four now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and you were able to have a lot of success with that team with two finals, finals appearances and one championship. So 
being a guy that maybe didn't have that much head coaching experience before taking that job, how were you able to ingratiate yourself with the players on the team and sort of establish yourself as a leader, despite not having the most head coaching experience? Well, it's a great question, man. One of the, probably the best questions I've been asked, I think, um, I, I always kind of just trusted my work ethic, right? So for me in, in London, it was just about preparation. It was about, um, just working as hard as I could. And what did that mean? Well, that meant, you know, one of the things I do is I meet with our players weekly, you know, individually, um, you know, putting a lot of time into the scouting report, put a ton of time into player development, uh, meaning that, you know, the guys were getting better. They felt like they were getting better and and they could see that. Uh, I was passionate probably at that point in my career. That was only my second and third year coaching. So probably, you know, a little bit too passionate at times, I'd say. And But at the end of the day, like, I think there was there was a synergy. We, we, we cut a lot of players there too. You know, <laughs> um, we were looking for, I was always looking for, I have this thing and guys that have played for me know about it. You know, we call it the 20 steps. I use it to recruit, you know, is he a 20 step guy is what we say, you know, 20 steps to what we call it to competitive greatness. And uh, you know, does he want to come early and does he want to stay late? You know, does he, you know, how does he respond to a loss? Is he resilient? You know, all these things that, that we try and build into a culture that we try and uphold, you know, that we try as uh, standards that we try and hold players to. And, and even, you know, myself as a coach and, Look, man, a lot of a lot of days too, where the players would say, "Kyle, you're you're not being a twenty step guy today, or you weren't last week, or whatever the case may be." And when you're in your second or third year, and you've never even been an assistant coach anywhere, and things like that, um, you kind of learn on the fly to a degree. But I always had a good feel for the game. I was raised by a coach. Um, the good thing in London was, you know, we had a group of guys guys that wanted to compete and be coached with passion. We, we just did. And the guys that didn't, we, we cut them um, in NBL Canada at the time there were, I don't even think there was a limit on the transactions, you know, uh, but, but the first year we definitely, um, we definitely had a fair amount of movement, but we had a very good record. I think too, what happened um, McCoy for me was I've, I've always been self-aware. At least I like to think I am meaning like, when I lose, I'd be very difficult and hard on myself. You know, I can tell you in my 10, 10 years of coaching, the 13 or 14 games that I lost with decisions or that I lost by coaching mistakes. Uh, I can tell you like right now, I could literally go over them. Um, you know, one of the things that I did my entire life was I kept a journal uh, since the 10th grade and a performance journal. And I do it as a coach and I have notes on everything, every practice, every meeting I have a note on on it and it helps me remember it keeps me sharp it also helps me evaluate myself and so that first year in London there was a, some very good coaches in the league um there was a coach a Spanish coach um named Hugo Lopez who I lost to in the finals I lost game, game seven uh or we I should say it wasn't me but you know I lost we lost game seven of the finals and this was a Spanish coach who I studied closely that year he had worked for Real Madrid and very good resume very good coach um I actually took some of his players the next season. Uh, I actually took some of his offense the next season. Um, in fact, Shane Gibson, who played for us with the Bandits, who's been very successful, he was a guy who played on that that team okay. in Halifax that year. So, you know, um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from the guys that kicked my ass. And then the next year in London, we did something really important that summer in between my second and third year of coaching. I was uh, I was very hard on myself. And I said, okay, enough is enough. The players that we bring in have to be our kind of guys. 
And that's where we developed this. I got it from um, some other coaches This, you know, in the, in the NCAA, I heard in the NBA, you know, OKG, our kind of guys. So we really went after 20 step guys, man, that season was incredible. It, you know, it never got any credit in Canada. It never got any notoriety or respect because at that time, the NVLC doesn't, didn't put any money into advertising and, and just wasn't a big deal, but we, man, we went 35 and five in the regular season. We went 11 and two in the playoffs and we had, I think, 29 assists a game, if not 30. Uh, we were scoring 114 points a night. Um, the ball was flying around moving. We had multiple guys with 40 point games, multiple guys with triple doubles. Mul you know, it was it was exciting. We switched everything defensively. Uh, we we were fun to just watch and be around. Our practices were absolute war. You know, we we I tell people I the people around me know this story, but you know, we, we came to the, uh, we practiced at the YMCA in London. So we got there 9. AM in the morning from nine to nine 30 was strength and conditioning from nine 30 to 10 was free time from 10 to 12 was practice. And from 10 to 10 30 in practice was skill and development. Didn't matter if we won 14 games in a row, we stuck to it. And we, we did our strength and conditioning. We did, you know, we were on the bike hard at first. We were on the treadmill. We worked and that team was and that, that team was hungry. No one complained. Um, no one questioned it. Uh, guys liked it. Guys enjoyed it. The guys that didn't like it were kind of brought along by the guys that did like it. There was a ton of self-coaching and self-policing on that team. And our best players on that team really were leaders. Like, like, like I didn't have to get on guys. I, I did when I felt like I, I needed to, but I didn't have to. Like, our leaders led, and it was a really special time. And I remember being in the middle of that season, being, man, I'm a young coach. I don't know if I'll ever get another group like this, you know, again. Um, it was exciting. It was fun. And when we won that championship, um, it just felt amazing because it was really like a good seven and a half, eight months of, Everyone sacrificed, you know, because that team was so good. Not everybody played as many minutes as they probably wanted to. And it was easy to make subs because the next guy was probably better than the guy coming out. And <laughs> if he wasn't, then I put the other guy back in. And uh, we played a very true five out system. That was back in, in 2015. Um, we had my heat scheme was the basis for our offense. Um, and we played with tempo and pace. It was really, really exciting and um, something I'll never forget. And I always think about that team. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned like some of the players that you had on that team were there. I know you coached Royce White because I remember following you guys. I, I would pop up on my Facebook at the time okay. and because uh, I had only known Royce White from, you know, the sort of the political stuff that happened in the NBA or the reason he wasn't sure. playing. Right. So what was it like coaching him? Was he one of the, the leaders on the team? Because I saw his stats. I know he was he was like a 25 and five kind of guy for you. Um, so what, so what was it like coaching him? Yeah, he was more like 20 and 10. He had a bunch of triple doubles. He okay. would always have seven or eight assists. He was probably the best player I've ever coached to be okay. honest, as far as just like overall skill yeah. package. He was a different beast. McCoy, he was six, eight, 275 pounds yeah. could jump. His second jump was incredible. Like he could just like, just explode and just jump, you know, and, and, and make plays at the rim, whether it be offensively or defensively. But I've never had a guy pass the ball the way he passes. I've never seen it, um, at least coaching, you know, and on my teams. Could pass with both hands at any time, understood the offense extremely well, knew what was going to happen before it was going to happen. Uh, you talk nowadays about like next action bigs, you know, that can flow into next action. Well, he was just incredible. And 
he he was doing next action stuff and we didn't even really know he was. We just thought he was, you know, making great reads, you know, cause now they have a term for everything back, yeah. even back then, that was almost 10 years ago. Now there wasn't always a term for stuff, you know, you know, as there is now. And uh, yeah, Royce was incredible. Um, the thing with Royce was very strong personality, um, but we just connected. I think he saw my passion right away. And I think timing is everything McCoy, you know, mm-hmm. you get with like, Coaching players is like a relationship. It's like dating, you know, timing has everything to do with it. You know, you might, you might meet a girl at a certain point in time and and you guys aren't right for each other, but eight (laughs) years later you meet and you know, you fall in love and get married. I think that's what it is with players. I think, especially for my style, if a player comes to me and it's not the right time in his career, he doesn't really want to work. Doesn't really want to be pushed. Uh, it'll, it won't work. You know, it just won't work. Um, but Royce was at the perfect time. He had been out of basketball for three full years, basically four seasons. Uh, when he first came, he was in horrendous shape. Uh, he wanted to work, wanted to let me push him. But he's so smart and so articulate, too. As he got into shape, he was really able to lead. And so as one of these guys, you know, you talk about some guys will just talk. I mean, I've had players that just talk, talk and talk and talk. And it's like, but. No one's going to listen to you because you're not doing the work and you're not producing. Royce was that guy who spoke a lot, but he produced. And he used to take the huddle right before the game and really motivate guys. Like I saw it. One of the first guys that I could genuinely say, man, this guy is like really pumping life into the team. And, you know, I think that team won 17 games in a row at one point and he was still hollering at guys um and he was tough to manage because he was so good you know you subbed him out he did not like it um you know uh he had an answer for literally everything because he was so smart he struggled with the the refs uh in Canada for sure and that was always a point of contention between us but really trusted me really let me coach him and we had tremendous tremendous synergy and formed a really great relationship um you know and then he stayed in London I, I went overseas and he stayed in London and he actually actually struggled the following year mm-hmm. didn't complete didn't complete the season with the team and I just think it was because you guys like that just they just need the right people around them and and they need to be um you just you just you kind of got to let them be themselves to a degree um and you don't want at the same time there needs to be a bit of a, a line in the sand you know I tried to coach uh Georgie this way uh, this year in the bandits, the same way as Royce, there's a ton of similarities between mm-hmm. their, per, their personalities. I, I tried my best, um, Georgie, very strong personality, uh, tremendous skill, tremendous energy, tremendous athleticism timing though, right. Timing Royce was at a, was at a point where, um, he was easier to manage, uh, for sure. And, and Georgie's at a point where he's still young. He's only been out of school for, for a few years. He's trying to find his way, trying to figure out what, you know, uh, what style of play is best for him and, and things like that. So again, it all comes down to timing. That was the right time and the right place for, for me and Royce white, for sure. It was special. Yeah, no, I, two things. First, I appreciate you bringing up Georgie because I didn't know if that was an off limits topic or something we could talk about later, but I'll definitely circle back to that because that's a lot. Like he's the kind of guy that a lot of bandits fans had a lot of questions about as like sure. throughout the season. So yeah, sure. we'll definitely circle back to that. And second, yeah, with, with Royce, yeah, he was one of those guys. I remember see. I was like, what in the eighth grade when he got drafted, and I yep. just remember watching his draft, his some of his draft draft express tape, and I was like, 
this guy's like, what is he like a more athletic Boris Dial, like a very mod, like you haven't really seen anything like him at the time. So yeah, he's one of those guys where I just, I wish I got to see him in an NBA setting where he would be able to play his game. Oh but, man, he, he yeah. honestly, McCoy, for the style of play right now, you could literally, exactly. you could literally play him one through five. His strength is incredible. I don't know the exact number, but he has the top five biggest hands in the history of the NBA draft. He's right up there. You, you, you could play him at any position in the NBA. And you know what was really cool that year was towards the end of the year, he started hitting threes. Shot okay. the three with, like, but the problem was, or not the problem, but the reality was he was so good penetrating, putting on the deck, so good on, on the block. He just never really shot threes for us. But he started making threes. And, um, yeah, the right place and the right, it's unfortunate that the NBA did, you know, wouldn't look past the issues. Because, you know, what I'll say, and this will be a good clip, uh, to, to have, and, I, and I'd even like to have this clip just for myself, but here's what I'll say about Royce. What Royce did for mental health was incredible. A lot of the athletes came after Royce and, and spoke up about mental health, but what Royce was the first, and it doesn't matter what anybody says. It's it's, it is, he was before DeMar DeRozan. He was before Kevin Love. Royce just had a very aggressive, um, overzealous way of of explaining himself and it and it probably turned people off i liked that about royce that resonated with me but he was he was the first and the thing is what i can honestly say is the fact that royce spoke out about it was so um out out front and out and out in the open about it it allowed me to coach him properly it allowed me to really understand him and allowed me to give him space when I felt like he needed space. We gave him a weekend off that year in, in London uh, for you know personal reasons. We had to, and it made a huge difference. A lot of guys have these same anxiety issues. They don't want to talk about them. They don't have the people around them to help them bring it out. Um, I've coached a bunch of them. I know them personally. And because they don't speak about them, uh, because they don't want to talk about them with the coach, uh, maybe... Maybe it's my fault. Maybe they, they're afraid to bring it out with me or whatever. But I do know that my relationship and my compassion and the way that I love these guys, if guys spoke about it more, we could help each other. We could help players more often. And I think the NBA really missed on Royce White. Um, uh, Royce was and Royce got angry and, you know, and, and Royce is passionate. And, and that anger was more was more um, him expressing his truth to people and uh but yeah, Royce spoke out about it. Uh, he was very open about it, and it through his draft process. I mean, it's essentially why the NBA picked him at twelve instead of the mm -hmm. top five. Um, and when he got to me, I was aware of it, and so we coached him with a certain amount of empathy and compassion and understanding. And I've probably made the mistake on a handful of players, McCoy, of not coaching them like I coached Royce because I wasn't totally aware. You look back on it and you've coached now for 10 years, there is a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of issues in, in sports and basketball for kids ages 23 to 30. You know, they're, they're going through these incredible life experiences, life-changing experiences. Some have kids and, 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 you know, basketball is their only, you know, avenue to make money at the moment. And so there's tons of anxiety with it. But I think if more players spoke out about it, I think if there was more help, you know, I think now, I talked about it even before Royce, but having a sports psychologist on team or having a doctor that knows how to handle some of these things uh, would make a huge difference. And, and I, now, in, now it is more common in pro sports. But at that time in 2015 with Royce, he really opened my eyes to it. And I think it allowed me to kind of handle him 
you know, better than other coaches that handle him. And, and it allowed me to kind of make certain decisions with him. And I think if more players speak out about it and more players are open and comfortable being open about it, it'll not only help them, but it'll help coaching staffs and teams in general. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a great perspective. And it's also cool how he made you a better coach that experience, like that experience made you a better coach as well. So yeah, no, that's a great, thanks for the answer. Um, so moving on now to, your time in Asia. So that success that you had with London allowed you to parlay that into overseas opportunities. And for my research, I wanted to focus specifically on your time in Taiwan with the Formosa Dreamers of the, yep. the P League. And I think at the time they were, when you joined, they were in the ABL, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So we hear a lot about how difficult it can be for a player to go overseas for the first time, but we rarely hear stories about what it's like for a coach to go overseas, especially a head coach. So can you speak on that experience of navigating like a few things that you kind of take for granted being in North America, like language barrier, cultural gap. And I think you mentioned earlier, earlier like style of play, right? In, in terms of the rules and whatnot. So can you just speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I don't know if we have enough time, but again, I'll try and uh, I'll try and keep it efficient. Yeah, Asia was an was an incredible experience. So um, first of all, I had been in NBL Canada for three years, and returning was definitely a possibility. Um, you know, but again, basketball in Canada, especially at that time, the business of basketball is not great, and making making a living, um, supporting a family is difficult. And um, uh, we had we had had probably still to this day the most you know successful season in that league and so we I felt really good and so um I said well why don't we just look at other options you know uh, around the world you know my wife is Asian my my kids are are mixed and so that wasn't even a hesitation coaching in Europe is tough it's tough to get a coaching job in Europe being from North America especially at that time I only had three years of, of experience and it's not like NBL Canada is is you know the, the the most respected league in the world at the time either so um Met some people in Asia. The ABL was an incredible league. It was a 10-team international league with a ton of money behind it, a ton of sponsorship. Uh, one team in every country, Southeast Asian countries. Uh, you got to use three imports, and they got to play the whole game. So it was like the closest thing you had to like kind of normal basketball, I guess you could say, you know, over there. It was, and, and, and I was offered a job in, in Vietnam. And at first I said, I'm not going to Vietnam. There's no way there's basketball even in Vietnam. Didn't know much about the country other than, you know, kind of what you hear about the, you know, Vietnamese war. And, uh, and so did some research. I'm like, man, this, you're not really coaching in Vietnam. You're coaching internationally. You know, your, your, your home court is in Vietnam. And, you know, started my, my wife is, my wife is from Southeast, Southeast Asia. And so the culture, I said, you know, let's, let's try this. Let's look at this. And she was, you know, she's as supportive as anything and she's tough minded. And, and, you know, our kids were young to where it was, we weren't uprooting them from a, you know, a social network or anything like that. So went to Vietnam two years in the ABL had a lot of success, but that, that was incredible adjusting. Like, I mean, incredible. And then from that, I got an opportunity to coach in Taiwan, which, which is a little bit higher of a level, even though it was in the same league, basketball in Taiwan is very developed. Um, the business is incredible. Uh, the fan base is unbelievable. And there are more players with basketball acumen, more players, you know, coming from basketball universities and schools and stuff over there than there was in Vietnam. So took that opportunity and ran with it, turned it into basically four years with the same team in four seasons. We played one year in the ABL that was cut short by COVID. And then, Viet I mean, and then 
then um, Taiwan did an unbelievable job of keeping COVID out of the country. So we had a we had a new domestic league to join, which was called the P League. And I did, you know, three years in the P League. Um, and that was just an incredible, incredible coaching experience. Uh, you cannot coach in Asia the same way you coach in Canada or North America. You just cannot. Stylistically, it will just you have to adapt to the players you have. You don't get to pick your team, right? So in Canada, I picked my bigs, my guards, my wingers. I want to play this way. I'll pick these guys. I want to play that way. I picked out. You get to Asia, you're, you're coaching who they give you, the players they give you. And um, locally in Asia, a lot of the time, the local players aren't, aren't very good. They're not big. They're not athletic. Uh, there'll be one or two, but they're just not. It is what it is. So you've got to get creative. Um, then, you know, my organization allowed me to kind of pick our imports. But it was really, really hard to pick imports for me in Taiwan because you need an import to come in and really dominate. The locals want that. They're, they're, they're raised on that mentality. For me, I thought I had that all the time because I was recruiting a really high-level player. But the problem with the high-level players, high-level players make like the right read all the time. They make the right pass all the time. They, they, they want to move the ball. They, they, they want to execute. But actually, you need less of that. You need a guy who just really wants to score it. And so I struggled um, with certain imports, uh, figuring that out. It was definitely, it was definitely a tough experience for me. But you know, we always kind of landed on on the right ones. And uh, my first year in Taiwan, we went to the finals in the P League, which was which was an amazing experience. My second year, we had an unbelievable year. We went twenty and ten, uh, finished second in the league, and then we had some terrible injuries right before the playoffs. And then my third year, which was in the P League, which was my fourth year overall, I think I just got you know pretty burnt out. Um, the organization uh, wanted me to play certain guys. I didn't really want to play local players, so on and so forth. And about fifteen games in, um, we decided to part ways because. All while this was happening, my kids were growing and getting older, and it seemed like every summer going back to Asia was more difficult. They wanted to go less and less. You know, like I said earlier in the podcast, my son Marcus, there was no basketball teams for him to join. Language barrier was was really challenging at school for them. Um, and so coming back to the, the fourth year before it even started, I met with the owners because I had another year on my contract, and I told them, I don't think I could do one more. So we started that fourth season with kind of like, you know, it was just a little bit difficult. And um, I love that organization. I love the players. And after the 13th game meeting with the owners, like, you know, I was like, man, I, I think this is the best right now at this point in time for me to actually step away. And, and uh, for the group, you guys have two thirds of the season left. It's not too late. You can find a new coach. I actually hired their coach for them after me, uh, got them, Signed them some imports this year, helped them get some imports, Georgie being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really worked hard to get Georgie a great job over there. And uh, yeah, so a lot of love over there. But going to Asia as a coach, the language barrier is incredibly challenging, especially when you have your own system with your own terminology and stuff. It's incredibly challenging. The players are not raised on the game the way we are. Um, there's a lot less athleticism. And then finding the right imports to fit is really, really difficult. You know, over there in Taiwan, in our league, at least, you can only play two imports during the game, and then you can only play one at a time in the fourth quarter. Really, really difficult. And then they bring in three imports, so every single game you got to tell one he's not going to play the next. And so for me, who, you know, I'm my whole culture is built on practice and practicing hard. You'd have an import practice really hard all week, and then you tell him the night before the game, look, you're not going to play tomorrow. If you do that to the same import three games or four games in a row over there, that might be a whole month because you only play once or twice a week, right? So um, 
Yeah, incredibly challenging. Had to get super creative with offenses and defenses. Film sessions, even if you wanted a 15-minute film session, it would be 30 because everything's translated, right? So every single you know, comment, every single, you know, abbreviation, every single little thing has to be translated um, to the local players and to their local coaching staff as well. And so, yeah, man, it was incredibly difficult, but I relished it. I loved it. I even miss it a little bit now, just being back in, in Canada now. And uh, it really shaped the way I look at the game. It affected me with the bandits for sure. McCoy, I can tell you that I, I, um, was a, I was rusty kind of coaching the way you have to coach in Canada mm -hmm. because of basically six straight years in, in Asia. I was rusty with what needed to be done here. Um, but yeah, amazing experience, man, that I would, I would never, ever say anything negative about. No regrets. Love those organizations I worked for and built some really strong relationships with players and, and uh, coaching staffs as well. Yeah, so a question I've always had is, so given your experience in Asian basketball, why do you think that China, Taiwan, they haven't had sort of on, an, on a FIBA or Olympic stage in basketball, they haven't had that breakthrough moment where they've made the podium, right? So why do you think that, I don't want to broad brush Asian basketball, but I'm just going to say why Asian basketball kind of their development falls short of what we see in North America or Europe? So I love the question. So because I've been there for so long, I've studied it, right? One of the things that I did when I got to these countries is I, I I'd go back 20 years and just look at the best players. Why were they, you know, how were they rated? What style of play? Like, like, for example, in Asia, just as an example, Asian players are not taught any type of physical defense. They don't know how to take a charge. They don't want to take a charge. They won't foul you hard um to send a message to get aggressive um you can call it toughness but toughness is way too general uh a term but the, the, they're just they're just they're not kind of like when i was raised on basketball i was taught at a young dive on the floor and was taught how to dive on the floor and i remember being in college and the first month of every college season was toughness drills you know fighting and and you know so on and so forth that's not in the culture over there at all at a young age. And I think it affects the way they play. And I just really think that defensively, they really, really struggle overall. Um, obviously, you can talk about size, athleticism, you know, um, genetics. You can talk about that for sure. But my, my two big things are, are the defense. My second uh, thing is the, the situation with imports. So if you go across Korea, Japan, Japan has really come on. Yep. But if you look at Japan and you want to you want to dive into Japan, it becomes very obvious they have some size and athleticism right away. Yeah, you know, yeah, we, we we just saw it with uh, with Yuta Watanabe and we see Rui Hachimura and yeah, the way they yeah. played in the FIBA. Yeah, yeah, and they're not winning those Olympic games without those guys. Exactly. But if you dig into the games, wait, wait a minute, these little point guards are are really you know doing things. And but Taiwan has some great point guard play, and so does China. If you look at it, so it's a mix, right? So, anyways, the fir first thing being the defense. The second thing is this import situation. I think that they hurt themselves in all of these domestic leagues with this cap on import minutes. I think it hurts the game. And I've told them that, uh, and we've talked about it in detail. But, for example, in Taiwan, right? So you can only play two imports. Uh, it's good. They, they say, well, we want our locals to play more minutes. And for sure, that, that will happen. But what happens is your locals are playing more minutes against your locals. That's all that, that that's all that happens. If you were to allow three imports in the 
game at all times, your locals have to step up. You will immediately weed out the weakness and you will immediately have your best locals playing, guarding and playing more interactions, possession by possessions with Americans or Europeans, just better, bigger, stronger players. If you do that over the course of five to 10 years, you will truly weed out the weakness and the cream will truly rise to the top. So in Taiwan, they do it the other way. Not only do they only play two imports for the first three quarters, but they say only one in the fourth. And yes, I agree. The locals are playing more <laughs> and the fans love the locals. But if you take Australia, if you take Italy, like let's look at Australia, for example. Australia has three imports and they can play. Why would Australia need Americans? I mean, Australians are great. Are they not top five country in the world? Uh, you know, international competition? Yes, they've been for a long time. But by playing three imports, the game just automatically gets tougher for the local. Automatic. There's less local jobs, yes. But you add a few teams, there's now a few more local jobs and the competition immediately, immediately rises. And so I think that's one of the huge things. They do it in, in, in Korea, they do it in Japan, they do it in, in China. They only have one on at a time in China sometimes. Only one, some seasons they've only have one import. Taiwan has been two for the last three or four years. And within that... Um, you can only play one in the fourth quarter. I just think it hurts the game overall. Um, I get it. They want to see locals playing more for sure. But Australia, man, Australia, th those, play those, those games are packed. The sponsorship is through the roof. It's one of the best leagues in all of the world outside of the NBA. They play three Americans the whole game, all the time. And then I think what happens is because if you look at European leagues and you look at Australian league and stuff, you start recruiting Americans and, and imports to like come off the bench because they're at a point where their locals are so good that you're not just recruiting a guy to carry you anymore. You're actually recruiting pieces. That's where I struggled in Asia was I was sometimes signing these players that were like great players at a high level, but ah, they're not really built to carry a team of Taiwanese guys or whatever. Right. And so I learned a lot about recruiting in that, in that aspect as well. But yeah, I think that's one of the reasons Asian basketball as a whole is just a little bit behind the rest of the world is because they just they they don't make it hard enough on the locals. And then the last thing I'll say, too, is the business of basketball in Asia. But that's way ahead of the rest of the world, like just your basic domestic league in Indonesia, in Taiwan, in the Philippines, in Vietnam and Singapore, like they're packed sponsorship. Their, their players are celebrities, 80, 90, 120,000 followers. Like we can't leave the arena in Taiwan for an hour after because our guys got to sign so many autographs. I mean, these are players with all due respect that would not even make a roster in the CEBL. You know, with all due respect, they just wouldn't. But they're celebrities in Taiwan and they have sponsorships. They have endorsements. I mean, you name it. I got a little point guard in Taiwan who I love, a kid that played for me for three years. He's got more endorsements than a lot of NBA players. And, and um, yeah, that's just how it is. The business of basketball way ahead of, of, of the rest of the world, as far as domestic leagues are concerned, but the development I think is a little bit behind in, in, in the toughness department in um, and when I say toughness, I mean, actual play and then the making it difficult and creating an environment where your locals like really have to grow. I think uh, they're lacking for sure. Yeah, that is one of the coolest insights I've ever heard and something I've always wondered about. So no, thank you so much. That's it's given me a lot to think about. And I'll definitely yeah, it's going to make me want to do some more research. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think yeah. 
Japan right now, they, they're a little bit better. You know, they, they have a few more imports. They allow like an Asian heritage player. So Japan has like a Filipino player who's always going to be like an American Filipino. So I think that's where the Japanese are. The Japanese are ahead right now of anyone in Asia, in my opinion. And it showed in the World Cup. It's showing in the World Cup right now. Yeah. 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 Um, thank you. That's a it's really cool. Now, segueing into your time with the Bandits and in the CEBL. So this season, you were both the GM and the coach of the team. Can you talk about some of the the challenges of navigating both roles? Um, I think it's a, I think it's good because, you know, as a professional basketball coach, I've been in a situation, McCoy, where, you know, you're you're only the head coach. Right. And, and the general manager has his vision. And uh, you've got you've got to coach, you know, his guys or at least collaborate. And uh, sometimes that's difficult. I think when you're the GM and the head coach, um, you know, it's your team. There's no excuses. Uh, so you these are the, the guys that you chose. Uh, now you've got to coach them accordingly. And I think there's uh, positives and negatives to that as a, as a coach, but more positives for sure. So it's the fourth year I've been with the Bandits. The first year I was with the Bandits in 2020, I was the head coach and GM, but that was the uh, the summer series, the COVID summer series in, in Niagara. The two summers after that, I was the GM working remotely because my my job in Taiwan, I could, I could not coach. Uh, I hired uh, people that I knew really well and... Um, you know, I, I did my best to let those guys coach and, 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 you know, execute their vision, but I built those teams. And then this year, um, you know, I was the head coach and GM and it's definitely challenging. Uh, it was definitely a challenging summer, but no excuses uh, for me. Those are the guys that I, that I picked and I picked for good reason. And um, we calculated a style of play this year, McCoy. And uh, you know, we, it's one of those, it's one of those situations in a 10 month season, a normal 10 month season, when things go wrong, you do have time to figure things out. When something goes wrong in the CEBL, you have no time, you know, absolutely no time, whether it be an injury or, or something along those lines. And I think this year we just, I don't like to use the term bad luck, but we had a lot of scenarios that required adjusting and we had not a lot of time to make adjustments. And I will say this, some of my adjustments uh, definitely did not work out. And, um, but we were still very, very close to being very good. You know, we beat all the teams that were in the playoffs, McCoy. Uh, I felt like we were playing our best basketball at the end. I felt like the group was really buying in the togetherness and the toughness, the execution was there. And then I just think, man, that 10 days in between the last game and the semifinal was terrible it was awful I, we had a really good week of practice and then we still had a whole other week no game and it's like okay do we scrimmage somebody but we don't want to risk the injury um you know guys were okay you know I, we tried everything we tried everything to keep some momentum and keep some uh motivation keep the motivation high it wasn't wasn't bad but we talked about as a staff look man i know these guys are going to jump on us you know, to start that game, that semifinal game. And if you watch, I didn't call a timeout. If yeah. you watch, if you watch me all year long, I called timeouts in those situations, right? I call them quick. I've always been a quick timeout guy to start if we're off the game plan. I mean, even in the, even in the Scarborough game, the game before I called a timeout immediately. Hey, we're not on the game plan. We're, we're slow here. We're sluggish. All right, let's make a quick sub, whatever the case may be. But I purposely decided not to call a timeout because I knew we were going to be slow and sluggish. So I didn't want to necessarily add fire or fuel to a fire and, 
maybe lose guys. You know, uh, I knew the group mentally. I knew where that group was mentally. I didn't want to lose anybody early. And, and yeah, I think that's just part of the learning experience. But, you know, being the GM, I get to grade the coach. I don't think the coach did a very good job in that situation. And, and, and now, you know, I can break it down. And so, um, yeah, super interesting doing both. Very interesting summer trying to play a different style than everybody else and definitely presented its challenges for sure. Yeah, and you talk about playing a different style. You you guys had two a too big, I guess, focused offense with Nick yep. and Georgie. Yeah. So can you talk about what factored into building that building the team that way? When, like you said before, historically your teams have been space and pace teams, up tempo, right, free flowing. So can you talk about what went into that decision in building this style of team? So we we definitely. I decided I definitely wanted to have a team that could do both, right? And uh, we did. At first on paper, we did. With DJ Stewart, mm -hmm. we did. We we had a group. And even if you watch us uh, during the year, we had some very good stretches of only one big out there, playing Malcolm DeVivier at the four, even Dwayne Notice at the four. We were really, really good. But we were also extremely good when Nick and Georgie were locked in. And we were running, we have an offense that we called racer. And when we were running racer with those two guys, we looked phenomenal. And I just thought no one could really guard us, especially if we got the complimentary shooting, you know, to go along with it, which we did uh, in a handful of games. I think what happened was, or I, I mean, let me answer your question. So why did we choose that style? Well, I knew the rest of the league was going to play five out and I knew they were going to play small and I said to myself, if I have a group that can play small uh, uh, and match up with those teams, then that'd be great. If I have a group that can play big and they can't match up with us, then I think we're going to have some advantages, especially in target time. I think what happens in target time is a lot of teams panic and they just rush and shoot really quick shots. And if you have a too big offense, it's going to make immediately make you structured. It's going to immediately make you slow down. And I think that's what's important in target time. When we lost DJ Stewart in that first game, we really struck or second game. We really struggled to kind of find the right point guard to fit those two guys. We added, we, we threw Diego out there and Diego was offensively phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, ahead of his time uh, for his actual experience, let me coach him, made big plays, really was good in racer with us, understood it. Um, but he struggles on defense right now. Uh, you know, his size and you could see the other teams, you know, older guys, four and five years older, you know, they Diego doesn't hasn't really invested in his strength and conditioning yet like he could. He he did with us. I think we were a really good experience for him and he was a really good experience for us. But I think he was limited as far as what he could do for us defensively. And a lot of my subs that I make historically are for defense. You know, I sub for two main reasons. One, we we count guys minutes. We don't like guys playing more than five minutes straight and unless they're rolling and they feel really good unless we understand their conditioning. Uh, the other one is defensively. If we feel like there's an issue defensively, then I'll quite quickly make, you know, subs. Um, and so, yeah, the, the two big offense, it was there. It was good. It was close. It was very close, but I don't think we had overall the, the point guard play to complement it. Like you're supposed to with that offense. And we had DJ Stewart. Uh, Diego was good. Doug Herring was very, very good. But I also think that Doug Herring is a pass first point guard and we needed more scoring to mm -hmm. complement the bigs, to keep that 
you know, situation. But again, like I can take about five or six games on the year where we were unguardable. You take those last two games, the Scarborough, the, the Ottawa, Ottawa. Yeah. some of the Calgary wins that we had. Um, and uh, we were really good. And then we had a lot of stretches where Georgie was at the five by himself. Nick was at the five by himself. And we ran a lot of my more, more, I guess, historic or my more uh, con- comfortable stuff that I've run uh, in the past. Um, and we were good too, but I just don't think we were consistent. And to be honest, we were a bad defensive team. Yeah. Anybody can, anybody can, can criticize the offense. Oh, I should not have played too big. Should have played more five out, et cetera, et cetera. We weren't good defensively. Um, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, to pick on guys or pinpoint guys. Uh, we had a lot of player movement, which always makes your defense struggle because you just can't work on it consistently the way you want to. The other thing is summertime is tough, man. Like a lot of guys, they're not necessarily as bought in as they would be in a, in a 10 month season. They want to have fun. They were just in Europe for 10 months, grinding, working hard away from their families or away from, you know, the fun things that they get to experience in Canada. So yeah, I just think all in all um, it was a down summer for us. Uh, We, we fought hard. We came back from more than down 24 different times. Um, we had a good group of guys that cared about each other. I think we had good togetherness on the team, which is really important. Um, we did some things where we played Malcolm at the four. Malcolm was phenomenal at mm-hmm. the four for us, uh, which I've always done with him in the past. And I, I, I couldn't get the coaches last year and the year before to do it. Uh, but I love doing that with a guy like Malcolm. I've, I've done it overseas too with guys like him. Uh, that had success. Uh, but yeah, in general, defensively, we weren't good. Um, and then offensively, there was never really that synergy for more than two games at a time with the two bigs. And, uh, I think that we have to correct those things now, moving forward, we have to evaluate those things moving forward and, 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 and try and find the sweet spot in between all of those things. Yeah. And you, you talk about the defense, right? I believe if I, if I'm correct, it's like you guys were second last in the league in points allowed. Can you talk about. Be, the fact that defense is a lot like like you said about connectivity togetherness guys being on the same page when you bring in, when you're bringing in guys throughout the season like how does how are you as a coach sort of trying to get guys up to date on the defense as you're going along given how short the season is yeah it's tough so we didn't pick a defensive team and and um, I had a very offensive mindset, especially with target score, right? Target score. You got to like, look in a real basketball game, you can be up three with three minutes left, score one more time, get five stops and win a basketball game. You can win on defense. You can't win on defense and target time. Like you just can't. If you look at our last game against Calgary, we were switching and yeah, we got hurt in the switching a little bit, but man, we got four straight stops in a row, but what happened on the other end? We couldn't score. We, we couldn't score, you know, same thing in Ottawa. We got a bunch of stops, but we couldn't score. We finally, we get an offensive rebound off a missed free throw and hit a three, <laughs> right? And, and even in uh, Scarborough, in that Scarborough win, they score three straight on us. We're not getting stops. We're going back and forth. We, we had the three possession lead. Finally, we hit a super tough three, you know, to win the game. So I think that we didn't bring in guys uh for defense we brought in guys to score you know that was my choice and my decision uh we had some very good defenders on our team alex malcolm Dwayne, um georgie historically was a very good defender um nick is very capable if you look at the defensive efficiency numbers nick is very good 
Uh, Dwayne is very good. Um, then after that, it really drops off defensive efficiency points per possession allowed. Um, but I'm going to admit when it came to practice with the players moving and coming and going, you know, we focused a little bit more on offense than I normally do on defense. And, um, I think that hurt us. I think that hurt us for sure. Um, but then if you look at our team compared to the rest of the league, we, we, us in Edmonton were really, in my opinion, the two teams that played without relying upon anybody. And I, and I will give, I will give, I will give Calgary credit as well. They were a little bit more balanced, but just about every single team in the CEBL had either, either a point guard or a two guard that just went crazy and they just let them go. We didn't have that. And so if we had an off night, we, we would struggle. If Winnipeg had an off night, Teddy Allen's still going to score 40. And they're right there at the end, uh, which probably even makes them a little bit better for target time, right? Because Teddy Allen can hit three threes in target time and, and game's over. And that happened a lot. Same thing, um, even, even with Montreal, who finished with a worse record than us, they still had Ahmed Hill, who could really carry them. And if you look at their wins, it was all him. You know, even Calgary, if you really go back to their big games, it was Steph Smith just playing one-on-one -on -one up top and just really hurting people, right? Um, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, Justin Foreman Wright in, in Saskatchewan. I don't think, you know, with all due respect, I mean, they, he had to score 40 just for them to be in the game, you know? Um, and we didn't do that this year. Uh, I thought that Nick, Georgie together was really going to create matchup problems. And it did. And other coaches talked about it. We just weren't as sharp as we needed to be consistently, but I really do think we were missing that consistent, you know, kind of perimeter score. I think Dwayne really stepped up and was offensively efficient. He was 0.96 points per possession, which is like really high. Malcolm was really good in the half court overall mm -hmm. offensively in the half court. Malcolm struggled a little bit defensively. I think for us this year, the numbers show he allowed like 0.7, excuse me, 0.96 points per possession defensively. So it was a bit of a wash that way. Dwayne, for example, only allowed 0.77, you know, so like one-on-one -on -one defense, we weren't great. I didn't focus on it probably as much as I should have. And there was a other player on every other team who didn't matter how good your defense was, he was going to get you numbers. And, and we kind of went the other way. So very interesting experience um, this year uh, in the CEBL. If you look at the teams that won and how they won, I mean, Scarborough won and they, they were saying that they didn't even practice. They never <laughs> even practiced. They just went out there, rolled the balls out and played with a bunch of talent. Right. So different ways to approach it in the summertime. It's not a real league. It's a summer league. It's different. Uh, I think we said for our first, five games we only had seven or eight practices just with the travel uh you got to rest guys you can't overdo it um so what's important scoring defense both are equally important but i think i put a premium definitely on scoring so that we could win target times and um sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't we also lost i think six games by basically next basket mm -hmm. wins right so we were we were right there mccoy in the mix yeah yeah and a, a question i had about some of the personnel decisions and sort of in the bigger picture about culture so like, like, like we've talked about a lot of roster movement throughout the season. And if looking at the roster from the start of the season, like if I were to pinpoint three, like a couple of guys that in my mind are like Kyle Julius guys, like really fit his culture, what he's trying to do. And like, those guys would be off the, off the top, Alex, Dwayne and, and Malcolm. Right. So the, sure. yeah. in my mind, so, you know, I feel like Dwayne and Alex, they like the beginning of the season their roles were especially alex like a little more inconsistent right yep. while while you were playing guys like i guess shane gibson mj walker 
So yep. who are on paper, like very talented players, right? MJ Walker, G League pedigree, NBA, like had a cup of coffee in the NBA, Shane, yep. like leading score for the team last season. So, yep. but those guys didn't necessarily work out with the team. So my question is, how do you balance culture guys versus on paper talent? Yeah, and I didn't do a good job of that this year, bringing that that in. I think if you go back to the bubble where we went to the finals, every single guy was a culture guy, McCoy. Um, and I think what happened this year was I uh, definitely wanted to bring in a certain level of talent. And I really, I really calculated on the fact that it's such a short season. It's so quick. Like if we have a high level of talent in there, um, I'm confident I can manage it accordingly. Uh, I'm confident that uh, I can get the buy-in. We didn't just take Shane Gibson, you know, randomly yeah. out of, he he really is for me, like in general, he really is a culture guy. Okay. He He's a little bit different, but I've known him for a long time. He's a very proven winner. And I mean, look, if you look what he did with us last year, 19 points a game, shoots mm -hmm. a three at 41%, one of the best scorers in, in uh, the CEBL. And then last year, I think, you know, I mean, I'm the GM last year. I'm sitting there watching these games intently, and he's literally carrying us through yeah. at least five Elons, like target times, at least five, you know. And so I'm like, we got to have him, right? And it's a year-to-year -year thing. It wasn't just random. The problem with Shane and fairness to Shane was he misses the first seven games of the regular season because he's still in Europe. He comes to us, he's exhausted. He comes to us, he's actually sick when he arrives. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we had a few discussions with him where I don't think his full priority was he wasn't as hungry this summer as he was last summer, for example. And so, yeah, you realize it's not going to work out. There's still enough time left in the regular season. Um, you know, MJ was more or less replacing dj stewart um and we had mj and shane at the same time and i thought look mj and shane they're you're not going to find two better better wingers uh let's let's play let's have that compliment to our two bigs and and we looked at it and we tried it and it it was really good for a few games i mean you know i one of the best games we played in the whole season was that i think a fourth or fifth game at niagara where we had a 20 point lead on niagara mj was hooping mm -hmm. Georgie was hooping. We were playing Malcolm at the four some. We were playing, playing. We only went eight deep in the game. We had Georgie and Nick out there together. Then we had Georgie and Nick as the fives themselves with Malcolm at the four. MJ's drilling threes. He's running all over the place. Um, and then, you know, it really stopped working that rotation because now Dwayne's not getting as many minutes. And then Malcolm's not getting as many minutes. Alex is getting no minutes. Um, and then you realize, okay, who's really bought in. And so you go through this period of like, you're kind of away from your culture. Okay. I got to get back to my culture. Right. And so, yeah, Alex starts to get more minutes. Um, if you even look at Malcolm, the four or five games before he like stopped playing, cause he got hurt. I think he was like 15 or 16 yep. points a game, you know, we're playing him 30 minutes here and there. We were really using them. And, um, yeah, that's where some of the, the unfortunate stuff turns, you know, Malcolm gets hurt. You know, he was really really playing at a high level. Then he got hurt. Um, we were giving him the ball. We were playing him, you know, we were starting him. He starts 13 out of 15 games. You know, he plays the third most minutes on the team. He takes the third most shots on the team. You know, he, he was a big deal to us. Um, you know, Dwayne was a guy who, if you look at the numbers game in and game out, you're like, I can't not have Dwayne on the court defensively, especially you're like, I just can't have, even if he's not shooting the ball or attacking, like we want him to, cause he, you know, he was more of a, you know, he, he wasn't as aggressive as I'd yeah. like to have seen him, but you know, you got him out there like shoot, man, we can't, 
you get to a point where we had to start him right and then uh okay now you're like okay man if i have uh, malcolm coming off the bench i can i can decide at that time do i want to sub malcolm in for the four or do i want to sub malcolm in for you know a tired Dwayne or a tired lex i thought i thought we were right there and you know we went through that exact kind of cycle of, okay, who's a culture guy? Who's not? Yes. You thought he was okay. He's turning out to be, it's the summertime. Things are different. Let me see what I can do. You know, core is an amazing example of a guy who even my wife was yelling at me. You should have played him <laughs> earlier. You know, he, he, he wasn't ready. Like we tried him early and it's his first, you know, he came from London Lightning, where where the league is at a different level than the CEBL, but he played very well for London. I mean, that's how where I saw him, and that's where I went to watch him personally. And he got to us, and he was just a little bit behind on his touch and feel. His effort was there. Um, we worked with him hard, and he bought in. So you talk about a culture guy, a Kyle Julius guy. I mean, Coor is that guy. And, man, we gave him his shot. He was ready to go. Mm -hmm. When we gave him his shot, he was ready to go. So now it's like, okay, wait, I don't have to sub Malcolm in at the four. I actually have a sub for our bigs with Coor. So now we have four bigs that can, you know, play because we ended up with Marlon, Coor, Georgie, and Nick. So I don't have to change the offense when I make a sub anymore. Um, and when we got to that last 10 with, with whatever it was, five games left, I felt really, really good about the team. I felt really, really good about the rotation. Okay, so let's look at that. That's 15 games. If this is a 10-month season, that's just your first 15, you know, 15, 20% of the season. Yeah, okay. I got we have no preseason games. You know, you have no training camp really in the CEBL. And then at the same time, we only had one or two practices for every game in that first uh seven games anyway. So yeah, I mean, we, we there was a lot of movement that I definitely know how I can correct moving forward, but the movement was calculated. Uh, we tried a few, few things that we thought would were really high risk, high reward um we realized that they didn't work but then when we got to that last 10 guys McCoy I was really happy with those the last 10 like really happy and um we practiced hard uh with that group we we had a lot of good film sessions with that group guys were correcting each other uh, we had a lot of individual meetings where guys were like really buying in and, and they were confident in what we were doing I really think that that 10 days in between that Scarborough game and the semifinal, we just, the first five, we were rolling in practice. It was physical. It was competitive. It was quick. The timing, the execution was really good. And then that last five, you could just see the urgency kind of dissipate a little bit. Uh, the effort kind of dissipate a little bit. We're trying things. Okay. Let me cancel practice today. Maybe they'll come back hungrier tomorrow, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, we got jumped on. You know, by Calgary, like I said, I should have called the timeout early. I don't know if that makes a difference or not, but it, you have to evaluate yourself and see what you can or can't do. And then I think we got her going to third and fourth quarter. We were okay, but we also had one of those off nights. You know, uh, Georgie's 16 points a game on the year. He had two. Uh, you know, Nick was a better free throw. He wasn't a great free throw shooter, but he was a better free throw shooter than he shot in that game. Um, uh, uh uh Doug Herring really struggled shooting the ball in that game so you know we were off and it's unfortunate but that's the CEBL man it's one and done uh it's target time anything can happen and you know again we got four stops in a row late and we are literally one possession away or one pass away from yeah. being in the finals man so it's hard season to evaluate because you're there um but you weren't and then at the end of the day too I really believe man that hosting that semifinal was a massive curse like a, we had guys talk about it. Yeah. We really started trying with two weeks left, you know, because they knew like, you know, these guys are older guys, they're pros, they're vets. 
They knew we were in the finals. Come on, coach. It's okay. We're, we're in the finals. We're already in the semifinals. You know, we're already there. So I do think that that was a, an experience for me, keeping guys locked in, knowing that, hey, even if we lose three or four in a row, Oh, we're still where we're, you know, we're still there. I think that was, um, that was tough. And then even knowing that we were playing Calgary, we already beat Calgary two out of three times. We already had their number. I just think, man, we just lost that momentum. It was tough to create urgency and just ends up all in all being a bit of a down summer for sure. Yeah. And so that last game and you brought up Georgia earlier, so I kind of want to get back to it now. So yeah, watching them this season a lot of great moments, obviously a lot of talent, but on the season as a whole, seemed like kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde type of season for him. Like, you know, great stretches sometimes, really not so great stretches at other times. So how do you feel about his season and his development as a pro? Yeah, I, I committed to Georgie. Um, I thought that he was like the linchpin to the style of play. So when you have a guy like Nick, if you have another big who can really pass and make decisions and, and like a next action guy, that guy, guys like Nick can really thrive. And then there's a huge matchup problem. Like if you look at every team, they had to really adjust their lineups to play us. You know, it didn't really happen like that against other teams. I mean, Winnipeg never played Chad Possumus until we played us. And Chad did a great job against Nick. You had to take your hat off to him. He really, he really battled Nick and Winnipeg had our number. And I think that was a, one of the main factors is because they had a guy that can bother, you know, Nick to a degree, but no one else had to like change their starting lineup to just to guard another team. Like teams had to do with us. Right. And, and Georgie was the reason um, he could pass. He could, he could play out of the, out of the, uh, the high low really, really well. He got us into our racer offense really well. He's a very good next action guy. But if you look at Georgie's pro career, the two years before he wasn't given a lot of opportunity. McCoy he wasn't allowed to really push the ball in transition uh, he wasn't allowed to do those things and I wanted him to do that for us I committed to kind of like his development I thought that he could be really special for us I, I really truly put a lot of time and energy into him helping us develop that offense and, and play in that offense look I got Georgie a huge job in Taiwan a tremendous opportunity in Taiwan I called the team I mean I'm very close to that team and and uh, they trusted me and I put him in that situation but he definitely had an up and down summer um, you know uh, I can't speak for Georgie I worked really hard with him we practiced really hard with Georgie we had a lot of meetings with Georgie uh, when he didn't play well we tried to analyze it and 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 we tried to hold him accountable to different things and I think he had more good games than bad. His good was really good, mm -hmm. McCoy. Like his good was really, really good. And I think as a coach, when you have a guy that's capable of that, if you coach the way that I do, which is just the passion and excitement, you're like, yeah, next, next one's going in. Next game's going to be great, you know? Um, and I always trusted him in target score. Uh, only one time I didn't play him in target score and we lost and he made sure I was aware of that. <laughs> and um, I trusted him. Even in the last game, you know, the could have gone Marlin, could have gone Coor with uh, with Nick late. I trusted Georgie, and um, yeah, I committed to it. Basically, I did everything that I said I was going to do when it comes to our style of play, when it comes to our roster. McCoy, and if you look at our numbers, I said we were going to play through Nick and Georgie, and we did. Mm -hmm. They took the most shots. They played the most minutes. Nick was one of the, if not the most efficient player in the whole league per possession. Um, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. 
I stand by that. I think, you know, we caught a lot of bad luck losing DJ Stewart. I think DJ yeah. with Nick and Georgie would have been super exciting. A healthy Shane Gibson would have been very interesting. Um, and then I experimented with some of the other stuff as we went along, you know, Shaquille Keith, I experimented with, uh, Marlon Johnson. Um, some of it worked really well. Some of it didn't, but, but I think we all learned a lot and Georgie definitely was up and down. He's young and it's the first time he was ever given that much responsibility. And I think that's just, just, he's an emotional guy an emotional player. I think the fans know that everybody saw that. And I think he kind of handled it the best that the best way that he knew how. And he tried, he tried real. the thing about George is he always came in every day, ready to work really hard. I mean, and that, that was important to me. Yeah, that's really good insight. And I think it will definitely give fans a greater appreciation for him, despite sort of that tough last game. And it's, it's cool that you talk about how important he was in terms of your style of play, because I remember thinking, watching him, like when we first brought him in and seeing like his G league highlights, I'm like, Oh, like I, I see, I see what they're doing here. Like he could, he kind of reminds me of like a, a Sabonis, right? Like kind of yep, this guy who yep. can be a bridge between your guards and your big with his passing, for, for sure, role, all yeah. that stuff, right? Yeah. So no, we I, call it. I call it like a next action guy. Yeah, the four. I call it a playmaker. So in Europe, they call the point guard the playmaker. In my system, uh, when I develop my offense, I call the four the playmaker. It's hard to find, like, for, like for example, I love playing Malcolm at the four. It gives him a lot of freedom. Get, but he can play make, right? He can make decisions. He can generate, he can shoot, and he's strong enough to guard bigger, stronger guys. Uh, when you have a guy who can do that and who's 6'8", 6'9", 6'10", then you're going to have like a, you know, an opportunity to do the little things that aren't in your offense, offensive rebound, draw fouls on the block. You know, I mean, Georgie kicked our ass last year when he was with Guelph. Well, he came, he came to the, uh, to the playoff game at home and really dominated Brandon Gilbeck, who's a great big dominated Thomas Kennedy. You know, he really kicked our butt. And uh, that's really where I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Because I got so familiar playing two bigs in Taiwan. That was really where I saw the opportunity to do something special with a guy like Nick and, and Georgie. And, and I doubled down on it. I stand by it. It worked some nights. It didn't some others. Uh, will we make, make changes going forward? Yeah, probably. But, but I feel good about, you know, the fact that we did something different than the rest of the league this year, for sure. Yeah. And I guess coming, clo closing it, like closing the bandit segment of this. Um, I just wanted to ask you, like given guys like Georgie and Nick, so you've come across a lot of guys in the CEBL that are on the cusp of the NBA or been in the NBA and now are out trying to get back in. So in your training experience as well, like what do you think separates guys that are knocking at the door of the NBA versus guys that have staying power in the NBA? Man, I love this question, McCoy. I love it. It's habits. It's lifestyle. It's who you are. Uh, I talk about it all the time in routine. Okay. So I've been around great players all over the world. Great players have a routine. Good players do not. Like they just don't. And then you dive into the routine itself. And then you see what their routine is about. Like, I mean, I know it's cliche, but you watch Steph Curry shoot the basketball. Those are game speed, full-blown reps. He's not that great a shooter by accident. It's not God-given. I don't care what anybody says. You know, um, a lot of the guys that I've been around that have been able to take the jump to the next level, it's routine. It's the routinized, daily, self-motivated, um, accepting acceptance of suffering, uh, push through the pain, coachability, day in and day out. So routine. All right. We have practice at 10. They're there at nine. 
they're rolling, they're foam rolling, they're eating uh, their breakfast or they've eaten it. They're ready to go. You know, they, they, the ball's bouncing, they get shots up early. They go through their routine, whatever it is, pre-practice. All right. They they're coachable in practice. You can work with them. You can push them. You can, they like the grind. They're there for it. Then after practice, they have a post-practice routine. Then you know that when they go home at night, they have a pre-bedtime routine. You know, you know that their nutrition is solid. They're literally not going to, um, they're not going to McDonald's or whatever. They're eating, they're eating well. They have supplements. They take supplements. They know what they put their bodies through on a regular basis. Like we have guys all the time that don't have any supplements or they've never, you know, considered supplementation, for example, that just tells me that you're not really trying to get your nutrition you know, to the next level. And, and then they come back the next day, they do it again. And it's like that thing I said to you in our earlier segment, we talked about Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. Mm -hmm. Hey, Kyle, everybody can have a routine for six days. Anybody can have a routine for a month, six weeks, but it's the real elite players that have it for not only six months, seven, eight, nine, 10, one year, two year, three year, four year. I mean, I tell the story all the time about Kevin Pangos. You know, if you look at Kevin Pangos's career, it's incredible what a average athlete he is with average physicals i mean i think he has a i'm pretty sure it's it's stated that he has a shorter wingspan um you know than his height right and listen kevin pangos made it to the nba kevin pangos i trained kevin from when he was in the seventh grade all the time through high school back when i was doing my skill and development this kid had a routine as soon as you get in the gym he goes to everyone else is talking shooting around you know warming up messing around Kevin goes to the sideline, ball handling. Then it's his form shooting. And it's the same. And I, I was with him in the seventh grade. It was the same. Then I was with him in the 10th grade. It's the same. Then I was with him when he was at Gonzaga. It's the same. And then I watched him, you know, play overseas. And I talked to him. It's the same. And that's why he's making big money. He's at the highest levels. And he was in the NBA and, and probably could go back to the he, I mean, he left the Cleveland Cavaliers, you know, by choice. Mm -hmm. um, then I'm around so many talented players that have no routine. They just don't. They just show up. They just play. They maybe smoke a little bit of weed at night. Um, you know, they they are talented. They'll they'll show up one day and score 32 points or 28 points. Um, but it's just not consistent. It's not reliable. It's not dependable. Um, and it's hard for those guys to to break through. If you go even through the social media of an NBA player, the good one, like you see the routine. You go through the social media of lower league, lower level players, you can see a little bit more party in here, a little bit more of this, a little bit like you can just see it. It's there. And um, I love listening to these guys like J.J. Redick, uh, even um, Gilbert Arenas. Mm -hmm. You know, I Ray Allen's my favorite player ever listening to Ray Allen talk, you know. You know, and and then I, I know guys like Kevin Pangos. I've been around other NBA players. Um, lots and lots of coaches speak about their, you know, college coaches about their best player, how he acted, how he carried himself, you know, di different things. It all comes, it's like you're listening to the same person. It's like you're talking to the same person. They all do the same things the same way and value the same things the same way. And I think that's it. That's the biggest separator for me, in my opinion, is these guys and their routines and what they do outside of practice, where they put their time. We always have a choice, right? You can go home at night and you can watch some film. Uh, you can go back to the gym. You can lift weights. You can, or you can do the other stuff. You can smoke some weed. You can watch a movie. Uh, you can, you know, stay out late, um, you know, and 
all of that stuff is always factored into decisions. It's always factored into coaching. Um, it, it, you know, it, it all, it all contributes to where you are and how you're going to play, you know, tomorrow. And, um, and, and I think for me that those are the biggest separators is your habits. Yeah. That's, that's given me a lot to think about in terms of, yeah, when, when you go to that, when you look at NBA draft and you're evaluating players and it's, yeah, like all the physicals, the, 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 the stats could be there, but it's what, what are they going to be like off the court once they get to the pros in terms of, yeah, their habits, the routine. So yeah, no, that's an amazing answer. Um, yeah. One, one of my, one of my favorite answers, you know, back to a Canadian players is Andrew Wiggins to that. Like you listen to Andrew Wiggins talk after he got to the Warriors about how his work ethic changed, right? How yeah. his diet changed a little bit, how his eyes opened up. Um, how he just totally went from this like very, very good NBA player. Don't get me wrong. All, I, he was an all-star yeah. to this like ultra elite championship level player. And if you say to him, well, what changed? He didn't add weight. He didn't do, he didn't change his body. I mean, he just changed his habits. Right. And the way that he practiced and looked at practice. And uh, I think that's the separator. So good to great, great to amazing. It's your routine. So Kyle, this brings us to our kind of final segment of the show. Just a couple, I got two just questions that are a little more light, a little more fun. Um, mm -hmm. That And also, I guess, still on the topic of basketball, um, basketball forward. So the first one, and this is just for my own curiosity, is a lot of kids, I coach, I coach younger kids, and a okay. lot of them weren't around to watch Steve Nash play. So they're not too aware. They, they know Steve Nash as the, the failed Brooklyn coach, right? They don't know... Steve Nash, the, the, the two-time legend. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So yeah. from, from everything, you know, a basketball and Canadian basketball, why do you think Steve Nash was so special? Man, he, I mean, I just think he was beyond special. He, I think it has to do with time. You know, he, at that time, there was no one really playing the way he played. Right. And the beautiful thing about him, too, is he kind of built it. He had to build, build his style and he build he had to earn it. I guess you could say is maybe a better word. You know, a situation in Dallas, he had to wait his turn. I mean, um, in Phoenix, sorry, he had to wait his turn. No, D Dallas, he had to wait his turn. And then, no, where did he no, start? Sorry. Phoenix, he, yeah. he was behind uh, Jay, Jay Kidd. Kidd. Yeah. So that, that made me, that made me yeah. think the other way around because he ended up going back uh, to Phoenix anyways. But yeah, yeah, he, he, he had to wait his turn in Dallas and then, and, those I, I tell my boys, even some of those playoff games he had at those last little that last little while in Dallas with with Dirk was unbelievable. I mean, absolutely the shots he was making the same foot layups. I mean, a lot of what's what's like so normal in practice now was like really unique and first time to Steve Nash, his his pick and roll actions and those same foot hand, same hand layups the way he was. He changed the game from that perspective um, in a way. Now, you have to really appreciate his physicals, like his ability to do this with size and, and athleticism, not being at the standard NBA level. I mean, yeah, to me, he is an absolute legend. He earned everything. He carved his own path. And now there are a lot of players playing the Steve Nash style and finishing and working on Steve Nash finishes because he was the one who, I don't want to necessarily say invented it, but was doing so much of it at such a high level. Uh, then I just think that whole style of play, like you alluded to earlier, Dan Tony creating a, the seven seconds or less where he just absolutely thrived, really opened everybody's eyes to, you know, pace and space. And I mean, he was really one of the first guards doing it. And, and then he had toughness. 
he just unbelievable toughness, like visible toughness, internal, you know, mental fortitude. You saw it all. He's a legend. He's a guy that I always, always looked up to. Um, I got to be in the gym with him a few times way back in the day. And uh, he's the nicest guy. He's, he's every bit of the greatest Canadian to play in the NBA, in my opinion, you know, to date so far. Uh, obviously, Jamal Murray and what he accomplished this year is is has essentially surpassed that. But Steve doing it at that time when pace and space wasn't really a thing um, kind of created a carved path for a guy like Jamal Murray, right? And uh, yeah, I just think he's a total legend. Man. Yeah, love it. Another question I had. So you've been coaching for a while now. Is there, if you were to, if you were to have dead or alive, the opportunity to coach one player, who would it be? Michael Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't show up to practice anymore or games anymore. I just give him the ball. I think that we, we just let him go. I think, uh, no, for me personally, for sure. Michael Jordan. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then last one, this is the very not basketball related question, but I'm a big food guy. Yep. Um, you've spent a lot of time in Asia. Is there any yep. specific meal that you had that, that you never had before, before going there? And you were like, Whoa, like this is something I really like. Well, there's a lot of stuff. There's yeah. a lot of stuff. Really liked, actually, uh, when we were in Vietnam, there was a tremendous uh, Vietnamese restaurants, uh, local places that we would eat at all the time. A lot of their soups, you know, were amazing. But then when we got to Taiwan, it was different. It was, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of stinky tofu. That, that, that's, that's famous. I never tried it. I did not have the guts. And in all the years I was there, I didn't have the guts to try it. Tried a uh, little pig's blood, which is a delicacy, uh, which I thought was decent. Um, but I'm a pretty um, standard white boy with my uh, meat and <laughs> meat and potatoes, you know, um, pastas and things like that. But but uh, again, my wife being from Southeast Asia, she's she makes unbelievable meals and, and she's a great cook and our boys love it. And so I've kind of been called I was cultured a little bit on that kind of stuff. But uh, Vietnam, for me, the food was really good. Taiwan, the food was really interesting. That's yeah. how I would explain it. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so that kind of, that concludes our show. And before we get out of here, Kyle, do you have any business or IG or pages that you want to shout out or plug before, before we get out of here? I mean, I just have my standard, you know, Instagram page. I am going to be, uh, in the near future, kind of starting to do the training again, I'm going to open up some training opportunities for kids and youth, high school players, university players, um, in the area for sure in the uh, Vancouver area. Um, but yeah, no, uh, at the moment, it's just probably just my, uh, my, my Instagram, Kyle Julius 33 and, uh, and then the bandits, you know, follow the bandits for sure. I mean, I'm the bandits are my heart and soul. I'm, I've moved my family here, committed to the bandits now for the future, been with them for about four years. So yeah, really excited about the, the future of the organization and just having an opportunity to be a part of it. Yeah, that sounds great. And yeah, so be on the lookout for uh, Coach Julius's training coming to Vancouver. Kids will definitely benefit and learn a lot from him. And yeah, that concludes our show. So coach, I just wanna say once again, thank you so much for coming on. This was an amazing episode. You were great. Um, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for everything you've done for the Bandits organization and really bringing pro basketball back to Vancouver in a serious and meaningful way. Like I know the city really appre appreciates it. Uh, my pleasure, man. It's exciting to be here and just be a small part of it. And thank you, McCoy, for everything that you're doing and following the bandits. It's that's exciting and that's and it's awesome to have, you know, fans and 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 
basketball people with IQ and high knowledge, you know, uh, giving their opinions on our team and stuff. That means that I think anytime anybody gives their opinion and, 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 and is passionate about it, I think the organization is doing something right. So that's awesome. All right. Yeah, yeah, that concludes our show. Thank you so much. All right, brother.